Welcome to Soulfilled Conversations with Ferengis Sadagatpur. Oftentimes, we think about what is informing us, what is informing our decision making. And within the past 40, 50 years, we've had such an openness, such an explosion in this field of uh, awareness and consciousness. And most of it comes back to our childhood and the exploration of our childhood, uh, the context of the childhood that we grew up in, uh, the circumstances, the environment. And it used to be thought that uh, our genetic makeup is what makes us, what makes us our personality, what makes us who we are. Uh, but as time has been going by in the past 40, 50 years, now we know that it's also a lot of it is nurture. A lot of it is the information that we are being fed as we are growing up. And not only the information that we are being fed, but the information that's around us and the way that we are taking it in. Also, the uh, circumstances of the people who are around us and who are the people that are around us, our parents, our siblings, our aunts, uncles, but first and foremost, it's parents and the circumstances of the parents while we are growing up, the dynamic of them, not necessarily anything that they might be saying to us. And of course, those are important uh, however, the circumstances of the parents themselves, what lifestyle are they leading? What kind of a challenges are they going through? And how are those being translated into the psyche of the child? And then later on into the teenagehood and into later years as adults, which part of these are we taking on and which part of them are we really acting on? So these are questions that are ongoing and uh, many psychologists and uh, many philosophers have delved into these questions. Of course, we know a lot now at this age that we are here, 2022. However, we don't know all of it. But what we do know is that all of us grow up in circumstances and all of us at certain point in time, we look back and we say, this was painful part of my life. This was an aspect of my life that I've been carrying with me and I haven't known what to do with it until today. And now I decide to deal with it differently. So today I'm honored to have with us very courageous person, uh, Cheryl, who is going to uh, share with us part of her childhood and part of her being in circumstances of the parents well, I don't want to give it away. I want Cheryl to do the speaking. But the question of how much of that, how much of a parent's circumstances really affects 
uh, or informs the child and the child's decision making. And with that, we go into Cheryl's story. Cheryl, welcome to Soulfield Conversations. Thank you for being here. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me and creating this beautiful platform and sacred space. I really appreciate it. So I guess I'll start from the beginning. <laughs> I was born in Tehran, Iran, and my father was a physician in Iran, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and we lived a very comfortable life. Um, the 1979 revolution happened and we had to get up and leave and I was only two years of age and even though I was very young I still remember having nightmares about the Ayatollah Khomeini and you know as a child your imagination just goes everywhere and I, I, I thought he was like very much like a devil or something and he scared me. So we immigrated to the United States and at first we went to New York and then we ended up in California where my mom's side of the family was. And that was a very challenging time for us because my dad basically had to start all over again and to learn English and take exams and, um, he had suffered from depression before uh, he got married to my mom. And my mom knew that he was going through that, but didn't know the severity of it. And I think the move we made to the States made it worse because he never really liked living here and just having to start all over was very challenging for him. So it just impacted him even more. Cheryl, but, sorry, uh -huh. at this point, how old is your dad? How old is your mom? And do you have other siblings at this point? So when I was around that age, my mom, so when I was around two or three, my mom was, was about 25, probably. And my dad was 10 years old, so 35. Okay. And my sister was not born yet. My sister came when I was around five and a half. They, they had her. And so while my dad was studying at home, you know, and he was with me watching me, uh, my mom uh, got help from her brothers to start uh, her own business, a deli. And so she started working uh, to support him and um, for him to get on his feet and uh, become a doctor here. And with time, his depression was getting worse. And I didn't notice it as a child. I mean, he was an amazing dad. He would always play with me and joke around. And I, I really had the most beautiful childhood. So, and I, I just didn't know about his depression until I was a lot older when I found a bottle of Prozac in um, the cupboard. And uh, I was a teenager around that time. And then he sat down and had a talk with me and I, and I learned that there was just a lot of shame around that, especially I think in the Persian community and, you know, seeing therapists and taking medication. So, and then at the same time at the, as I got older at the age of eight, 
I realized my love for art. And third grade teacher was uh, also an artist. And she was from New York <laughs> as well. And I think that's where my fascination with New York also started. And she, my mom had her teach me like extra on the side and I would bring assignments home uh, to do. And then uh, when I got a little bit older, I went to one of my mom's friend's house and her daughter had this beautiful painting of a white cat, this white, beautiful furry cat with these big eyes, looked like a Persian cat maybe. And her 13 year old daughter made it. And I, it was like, as if the clouds opened up at that moment. And I knew this is what I wanted to do. Like, I want to be an artist. And I told my mom, I want to go to whoever she went to, to teach her. And so my mom uh, found out who the teacher was, this wonderful man, um, uh, Iranian teacher named Mr. Torbati. And at the time we lived in, in the South Bay, which is um, about 30, 40 minutes away from LA and uh, West, West LA where he was at. So she would drive like 40 minutes to take me back, you know, 40 minutes one way, 40 minutes the other way to take me to these art classes. And so I owe a lot to her for that. At this point, she's and, still working at the deli. And yeah. is your dad a doctor at this point? Did, was he yeah. able to get his? No, no. so he, he wasn't able to pass. And I think after the second attempt, he just um, gave up and his, he was getting more depressed. And so he just went and he decided, I'm just going to go and work at the deli with her and and later on, he went to get his chiropractor's degree license, and but he didn't do that either. Again, I think it was the depression and just lack of motivation to do that. It wasn't what he really loved. Right. So he was always, I noticed he was always searching for that thing that would bring him to life. And so, yeah, they, they and, and the business was bringing in decent money. And um, so, yeah. And then my dad growing up really pushed me to study science and math. And I was never really good at that. I thought something was wrong with me because every Persian kid I knew <laughs> was good at that. <laughs> but I was good at what I didn't really take into consideration was, well, my strengths were in art and art history and English and history and all those great things. And I would get great grades in that. And, and because he was a physician, he pushed me to go into the medical mm -hmm. field. So I went into uh, the physical therapy major and, but inside I want, I wanted to be an artist and art teacher. And, and I told them that, and he's like, ah, uh, you're not going to be able to make much money that way. And so I, I put that aside. I, I kept pushing that aside. And so at the age of 19, um, my dad made some um, poor decisions um, uh, financially and we lost our home. So basically we were homeless for like three weeks. We lived with my grandmother in her small one bedroom apartment 
And that was really hard for him to have made these and, and they never communicate like my mom and my dad never communicated with us what was going on in that process, you know, before we lost our home. So it was just, we got a knock on the doors one day and you know, that you guys have to get out. Would you have preferred if you had known? Yes. I, and that's a thing. We didn't have very good communication skills and that's something I work on to this day you know, and, and my husband has been my biggest teacher on that um, because he had great communication skills with his family and his parents. And that's something I always wanted and wanted with my own kids. So it was a, it was a lesson and I'm, and I'm learned to have that better with my own family, with my mom and my sister. So that was a heartbreaking moment in my life. I remember like just my sister and I were in tears, standing outside with our bird <laughs> in its cage. Oh. And birds are very symbolic for me too, because of that. And just like our some of our clothes. And and then, you know, of course, later we got to go get the rest of our stuff. But yeah, so I think that also caused like it was just a lot of shame that, you know, he brought this on to his family. And so I think that took him even into a deeper depression mm-hmm. and you know there's a man wants to be able to provide for his mm-hmm. family a father so I, I understood that and I later on I, I had a lot of compassion for what my dad was going through and I, I forgave him for that it, you know it, it's okay now like it's it's the past and I learned a lot from it it made me stronger so I finished college and I, instead of physical therapy, I got a recreational therapy degree because it wasn't as difficult and I didn't want to um, dissect a cadaver. And on the side, I was taking all these art courses, which was like, I could have minored in art. And then I got married at 24 and I had my first child two years later. And, but while I was pregnant with him, my dad got a call, uh, his friend from Iran that he hadn't heard from for years. And that was a pivotal moment in our lives. Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if he was not able to reach him or my dad didn't answer that phone call, but it was meant to be. And he told him, Uh, There's a property in Iran that we both bought together years ago and your name is on it and you just need to come and sign the papers and you'll get some money too and please come. So my dad jumped on it because my parents were struggling at the time. And so my husband had a bad feeling about it. Because uh, he heard stories about people going to Iran, especially if they didn't have the right people helping them, like lawyers, because he's an attorney himself. So he had told my dad and my mom, you know, please don't do this. It's not a good idea. And, you know, they they did their own thing and, and he left. So he left when I was about three months pregnant. And then um, I was I was about to get give birth and 
I begged him, please come back. Like you've been wanting a grandchild for so long. I need you here. And I just, I wouldn't stop. Every day I would call him, please come back. And he said, okay, okay, fine, I'll come back. So the day after I gave birth, he came and I was so happy and relieved. And then three months later, he left again. And had I known what was going to happen, I would have done everything in my power not to let him go back. But again, when things are supposed to happen a certain way, and it's just someone's destiny, there's only so much you can do. And so every year would go by after that with uncertainty. And he would call us and say, I'll be back next month. I'll be back next month. I just so he left. He was there for seven months. Mm-hmm. He comes back to America. Is with you for a few months. And mm-hmm. then he goes back again. Yeah. Because what he needed to do with this property hadn't finished. Yes, exactly. So, um, and just the laws and everything is so different in Iran. It's a little, you know, backwards in a lot of ways. The rules are different. So, and he wanted to bring home money for his wife and my sister and who was still living at home. I know he felt like he had a lot at stake and wanted to prove that, that he was capable of, you know, earning money for the family. And so my mom at the time was also, she was, was really struggling financially, even though he sent some money to her. And I decided I would help her open up her own daycare because I worked for a daycare and when I was younger and um, I knew the ins and outs. So I just said, look, we got to do this. You, you, you have to make money. Um, you can't, can't depend on everyone else and other family members. And so we did that. And um, God, she has a thriving um, daycare business now. And um, she's on her own feet. So I'm very grateful that she has these blessings now because it was a very, very difficult, challenging time to go through and to see your mom suffer like that and be on her own. And my mom, my sister go through so much. And so at the same time, I was struggling and I had, you know, a little baby. And then when he got older and he went to preschool, I met um, my first life coach, Julie is her name. And she's another mom at the school. And when I met her and found out what she did, I said, I want to get to know you better. And I want to be friends with you. And she said, absolutely. And so um, I hired her to be my coach. And that was when she told me, because she knew everything I was going through with my dad. And she said, why don't you paint your feelings, everything you're feeling about your dad? I never thought about that. I mean, art was at that point almost non-existent and a hobby, you know, every now and then I would do it. And that's when I began to heal through art. And then I had my second child and he was. And meanwhile, your dad is still in Iran. Mm -hmm. 
And then I had my second child, uh, I was pregnant with my second child. And um, again, you know, he, he's, he's there. And I cried a lot because I was hormonal and I had a feeling he wasn't going to be back for the birth of this one. And so it was very hard for me. And uh, after I gave birth to my second one and I, I, I think I was going through postpartum depression. Like I, I struggled a lot. And how much uh, time had elapsed since your dad was in Iran now? So it had been about three years, three years yeah. already three years. in Iran. And yeah. in the interim, your mom is struggling and mm-hmm. you open up a nursery together with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have you have a baby. Are you working as a recreational therapist or no? You no, you're, not anymore. No. I'm I'm a stay at home mom and focusing on being home with the kids and um, and then you get pregnant and then after the pregnancy you you're going through postpartum depression and at this point your dad is three years away. Mm-hmm. And so um, I went to a therapist, they put me on medication. And after two weeks, I started to, it it just didn't feel right. Like I felt it was just numbing me and my senses. And, you know, that's, that's where like, I, I decided to do the life coaching and doing therapy as well still. But I felt and I'm not against medication at all. Like I do feel like it, it helps. And I, I don't think I found the right one for myself, but I also wanted to try the more holistic route. And so I began to focus more on my diet and on exercise, especially. And I started doing yoga and that really helped me. And then uh, like, um, my life coach said, you know, paint your feelings. And so I started to do that. So it was seven years later. And during my third pregnancy that I found out my dad was imprisoned for signing (gasps) the wrong forms um, without a lawyer present. So I decided um, I wouldn't talk to him during my third pregnancy because I had to conserve my energy and protect my energy for my, myself and my um, baby because I saw what impact it had on my second pregnancy and on him when he was born. Because I do feel, I mean, that baby is swimming inside whatever you're feeling. Yes, 100%. So, so I needed to protect myself. I, I, I adored my dad, but at the same time, I could not put myself through that again. So I gave myself a break from him. And um, it was the right decision. It, it, you know, I, I don't ever doubt what I did. So at this point, it's seven years. Mm-hmm. Uh, third you're at your third pregnancy it's seven years since he's gone meanwhile you find out that he's been imprisoned right and during that time I kept painting every now and then and 
then as a hobby and to fill up the walls in our new home. And before I had my third child, one of my friends asked me to teach a group of kids from, from her school, her son's school, and uh, young kids. And uh, I did that for several years, and I loved it because that's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to teach art. And um, at the age of 36, a year after uh, my first child was, uh, my third child was born, another artist came into my life. And she saw the paintings on my walls and she uh, asked me, why don't you sell your art? And I thought she was crazy for even asking that. I said, I can't do that. Like, this is just for decoration and a hobby. And then she started to mentor me and I be became a professional artist at that point. I, I, I just jumped in and said, no, this is what I want to do. And it was just something my soul was yearning for so long. And now, you know, seven years later, since that day, no, eight, my daughter is nine. Oh, wow. Like nine years later, I realize why, you know, that I did that and how much healing it brought. So during that time, we did everything to help my dad out of prison. We even did a GoFundMe page. Uh, campaign on Facebook, which was a very big deal, especially oh, with our community and my family. And I know a lot of people judged us because of it. And a lot of people were very supportive and very kind and loving because a lot of people didn't know the true story. There was a lot of made up things, but the GoFundMe was taken down because it was an overseas thing. And so uh, that didn't happen. And that was disappointing. But I do feel like there was a big reason for that. And my husband helped me with that. Like, he was like, we got to figure something out and we need help. And that's what I'm realizing now, too, is that it's okay to ask for help. I think a lot of us think that we have to do everything on our, on our own and by ourselves and that it's there is shame behind it. I don't know. Was and, that part uh, of it really hard for you in terms of feeling that you're being judged? Was that just as hard as your dad being away? Yes, it, it was really uh, because I just felt so much judgment while he was gone. Uh, I, I've, I've had people approach me and say, well, maybe he got remarried or he has a girlfriend or he has another family. And I thought, oh my gosh, how could you even, even maybe if it might be true, which it wasn't, why would you say that to a young lady who is suffering right now, who is going through a painful experience in her life, you know? So, you know, putting it out there was a relief too, even though I had a lot of fear and and it, it was a bit terrifying because I had in my mind, my family members, their words of, you know, like, why did you do that? Or like any, like just the community, what, what were you thinking? And that was a bad idea. So I had to put all of that aside because it was a cry for help really more than anything else. 
I do feel we made the right decision because that's when people began to step up, especially my father-in-law who to this day, like I am so grateful for everything he has done to help us. He's the one who found a good lawyer in Iran to help my dad get out. He was just so compassionate and caring and was just really there for us. And that was a big sign for him when he saw what we did, you know, with the GoFundMe. So I don't regret that at all. And sometimes I feel like we have to get out of our comfort zones and do what's scary and put aside what people will think because people will judge you and think whatever they're going to think about you no matter what. So, um, and, and that's another reason why I really make an effort to not get in the space of gossip, judgment, because I have seen how hurtful it could be and not to make up stories or if I hear something about someone or what they're going through to have compassion for them and also know that maybe there might be another, there's another side to that story and that they're really going through a difficult time and to just send them um, love and good energy um, because it's painful to go through these experiences. And when judgments are thrown at you, it's even more painful. And then you hear, I even, well, I'll tell this part later. We were finally able to get my dad out of Iran. How many years after? So this was 12 years later. Wow. So for, for five years, he was in prison. For five years, yeah. And while he was in prison, he, they made him the physician there. So he helped other prisoners and everything. And they gave him a nicer space. And, you know, it was interesting because I'm all, I'm a believer of like, whatever we speak, we can manifest. Our words are very powerful. So something my dad always said was, I am okay with a small room with a bed in the room and my books. I don't need anything else in my life. And one day I get a picture from one of his friends of my dad in this small room on his bed, a mattress on the floor, reading a book with books all around him. That's what he said. That's what he manifested. So Wow. What he wanted. So, I mean, I, he, I, he didn't want to be in prison, but that's why I'm always very aware of what I'm saying, what words come out of my mouth and what I want to bring into my life. Mm-hmm. So he was there for my son's bar mitzvah, which we were so happy about and so grateful for. It was really the most amazing. So after 12 years, he makes it back to United States Mm -hmm. and he makes it back for your first child. Yes. Your first child bar mitzvah. And, um, and this is after so many years that he's been in prison and here he comes and you're all celebrating together. 
And I, I really felt that party was for my son and for my dad. I will never forget that night. And I have video footage of it still that I watch. And the smile on my dad's face was just so beautiful. Like the joy I saw in him. I had not seen that kind of joy in a long time. So that really filled my heart up with a lot of love. Five days later, my dad had a stroke and uh, he was in a coma and uh, his right side was completely paralyzed and the doctors said he was hemorrhaging blood in his brain and they did surgery on him and they made it seem like he would never wake up. But my intuition was telling me, nope, he's going to wake up. He is, and I feel like I developed a strong intuition throughout the years. And when I would talk to him, uh, he would squeeze my hand with the side uh, that was working and it lightly. And I, I, and I would talk to him about my childhood with him and how much I love being with him. And I would see like a little tear coming down from his eye. So I Aww. knew he was there. I felt him. I felt he's there still, you know? And then this was Thursday and Friday night we went to synagogue. I was very emotional. And we told uh, the rabbi in the cantor what was going on and everyone prayed for him there. And then we got a call from my in-laws who were at the hospital that night. They went to go visit him and they sent us a video. Um, my dad was moving his um, left side. Um, his, uh, he, he woke up and he was moving his arms and his legs to show like, I'm okay, I'm doing great. And he had a tube down his throat so he couldn't talk, but he was very aware. And we rushed to the hospital and I was like, wow, our prayers have been answered. This is a miracle. I was just thinking, okay, one side is paralyzed. That's okay. He'll do physical therapy. We'll be like, we'll figure it out along the way. And so we, we went there and we were so happy to see him. He was happy to see us. He shook hands with my oldest son. He was the only one who was allowed in that section of the hospital. And you could tell he was in pain because of the tube, mm -hmm. but he was very alert. And um, we left and that night he had another stroke. And that's when I knew, yeah, this is not good. And when I went to go see him, I felt his energy was different and he was no longer there. Like there was that part of him. I felt before it was missing. Like he was starting to transition. I'm sorry. So... Thank you. Yeah, he. So that was hard, very difficult, heartbreaking, because, you know, you have all this hope and you're thinking. Again, like even when we had him back, we thought we have another maybe 10 years with him. He was like 75 and OK, we, we lost 12 years, but we have another 10 years at least with him. You know, these are the things you think in your mind when 
that's not always the way it goes. And so, yeah, we were all devastated and it was hard because even the doctors were just so blunt and you didn't see the nurses. I felt like there was more compassion there. Like, and I know they, the doctors, they, they see it so much that, that they get used to it. So it was hard to see that in their eyes too. Like there's nothing we could do and you have to decide whether you want to take them off the ventilator and when. Wow. So my mom wanted to hold on and really believed he would wake up, but there was a lot of communication we had to do and uh, with her. I knew my dad and my sister knew he wouldn't want this because uh, I, I, I saw my uncle go through that. He, my uncle was in a coma for seven years, so oh. I didn't want to see that from my dad. You know, I, I, yeah, I didn't want him to suffer. None of us did. So after two weeks, we finally, you know, convinced my mom and she was at peace with it. And yeah, so we, we did that. And, you know, it was the first time I saw the process of someone transitioning. So it was a little like heavy, it was traumatic, you know, so it, it was a lot to process for me. And, and why? Why is this happening? Like, why, why us? Like, after everything we've been through. Um, and with time, I began to understand and to just be grateful that we got him back here before he passed. Because if it happened in Iran, who knows what they would have done with his yes. body or we wouldn't have been able to go to his gravesite. Yes. We wouldn't have had closure. I really feel his soul came back in order to, you know, complete whatever it was he was supposed to in this lifetime with us. And he did that and he was at peace. And he was, you know, and, and it's interesting the day before he had the stroke that that night, um, he, after he woke up, he told my mom, I had the most beautiful dream. We were walking together over a hill and over that hill were these green lush hills. Like it was just beautiful, like something I've never seen before. And I, and, and we were just looking at it together. Like it was like out of a fantasy. And so it was as if his soul was telling him like, you know. Looking at Ganeden. Yeah. Oh. So. I'm sorry. I'm <sighs> sorry for your loss, your family's loss. I'm really sorry for your pain. Thank you. And this has, this pain has so many different phases. It's the, the phase of coming here, wanting to build something, having hope, and then your hopes not materializing through the 
doctor that he did not become. And he was one in Iran, but he did not become. And uh, there is financial crisis. And in the meantime, you lose your home. And there is shame with that. That, that is another pain. The loss of hope, the shame that comes through with lack of realization of a dream and also not being able to have made it. There is, there is shame in that also, not just for you, but for your mom, for your dad. And you were also carrying some of their shame onto yourself as well, being that you are the older child and you're the daughter. And then comes your dad leaving to Iran and um, the process of 12 years uh, that I, I just cannot imagine the fear of everything that you, your mom and your sister went through. And in the meantime, your mom has to build a life, has to build a business, has to bring in money. And in the midst of all this chaos, you find a way to express yourself and you find a way uh, to bring a little bit of beauty into everything that is going on and that is through your art. And you refine yourself through, through what you had always loved to do and loved to be, uh, which is your art. So can you tell us a little bit about how um, you have been through all of that, which is a lot, even one of them is a lot, but then you have added things on top of each other, one on top of each other, and your dad eventually comes here and, and then you lose him. How do you get through so much pain? What did you find that gave you solace and gave you, made you grounded in, in the space that you were at? Meanwhile, you have a family. What helped you go through this? I got a lot of therapy. Again, I'm a big fan of life coaching. So I took a lot of courses and uh, I became certified in it and I would exercise a lot and meditate and go to the rabbi, talk to the rabbi, um, go to synagogue, you know, bring in spirituality as much as I could and art. Um, recently, I went through a really difficult experience and I did something called uh, art transformation journey and I painted for about 114 days every day I'd create a painting and they were kind of I guess they were paintings of women and I feel they in a lot of ways represented me and the different faces of me every day and some were beautiful and some were emotional and not so pretty. And that was okay. I was pouring it all 
onto that piece of paper instead of into my heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because I do feel when we don't express ourselves, it could turn into dis- disease, dis-ease. And so there has to be a form of expression I feel in our lives to bring that healing, whether it's singing, playing the, playing the piano or playing music, something to purge those emotions so they don't stay stagnant within you. And I think that's what can turn into depression or anxiety or uh, a lot of those emotions that are kept repressed and inside. So had I not had those ways of expressing myself, I don't know where I would be. I, I, I feel I would have been a mess. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Cheryl, I want to ask you, there are so many people that go through experiences that shames them or they feel shame inside. What would you tell those people right now who are going through a situation that they feel shame about? And this could really be anything. I mean, you lost your home. You, uh, you had a father who was in prison and people came up to you and said, you know, different things that were not true and it deeply hurt you, but also shamed you. You had the GoFundMe that you were judged for from a community who is tight knit, but at the same time can be judgmental. What would you if you are speaking to a person who is feeling shamed within themselves now, what can you tell them that can help them move through it without being stuck? I understand that shame because I've lived in it so much, but I have been able to get out of it by speaking my truth. I suffered a lot from not speaking up and even had thyroid issues and you know and I was very shy painfully shy so I I wouldn't say things because I was afraid of what people would say about me or think about me and if 15 years ago you told me I would be talking about stuff like this on a podcast I would think you were crazy like that just was not me So I feel like to get through that shame is to talk about it, is to express yourself, is to, because I feel like once you do that, you find people who resonate with you and who understand and say, oh my gosh, I went through that myself. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and who are caring and compassionate and the ones who, don't and come from a place of judgment then then that's their thing you know and that's okay because like I said no matter what you do you could be the most perfect person I don't believe there is the perfect person to begin with people are going to think what they're going to think about you and that's none of your business really it's okay I think what's important is how you feel inside about yourself 
and to have that love and compassion for yourself. And it took me a long time to get to that because I used to beat myself up a lot for the mistakes I made or what I said wrong or did wrong, or I could have done this or could have done that. And that's when you start hurting yourself. So I also feel like, how would you treat your friend who is going through this painful time or holding these things inside of them? How would you treat them? It would be with love and compassion and understanding. You would lend them a ear. So I feel like we need to do that for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we forget that, that, hey, it's okay if you're going through this. And I think mental illness especially in our community, there's so much of it going on. And then with everything that's happened with quarantine and COVID, I mean, it's just gotten worse. And there's people who may have shame over that. And this is why I'm talking about this so openly, because if there's someone who is going through the depression, anxiety, or whatever it is, it's okay to talk about it, whether it's a close family member or friend or go seek a therapist it's okay like if you can get that help and get yourself out of that your life will change and slowly but surely because uh, if I didn't go seek out all the tools because it didn't all just come to me magically there are a lot of things I had to seek out or I had to take action and do in order to um, have these things around me and whenever I'm going through a difficult situation in my life I reach into that toolbox and I and I use it and I'm able to move forward with courage and strength instead of weakness and I feel had my dad had that he would have been in a different place but me seeing him go through that taught me what to do so I wouldn't be in his position. So mm -hmm. he was a big lesson for me because uh, I could have sat there and blamed him. And I did. I did. And I had, uh, I judged him. And when it, the two weeks when he was in a coma, uh, it was the time where I told him I forgive you. And I hope you forgive me. And even, and he came in my dream after he passed and I just looked in his eyes and I said the same thing. I, dad, I hope you um, forgive me. And I, I forgive you. And he just wow. nodded his head. And um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I, I feel like whatever, we are going through, we could, we, we have a choice. We could either come from victimhood or strength and choose to face the situation or problem with courage and take the steps and actions needed to do the right thing for ourselves and for our family. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um... Also, I, I, what would you say to the people who are a witness to 
very challenging situations that other people might be going through. What would be your advice to them? I think the most beautiful words I heard when I was going through that challenging, painful situation was when someone would look me in the eyes and say, I am here for you Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, well, just pretend he's still in Iran, you know, that he's still living there or um, it was his destiny or um, it's okay. This too shall pass. All I needed to hear was, I'm here for you. Uh And just to sit with me in the silence, if I needed that, and to just give me a hug, the hug was the nicest thing as well. You know, Uh, I think our words have a lot of power. I think that's why I was so quiet at a young age, because I would notice I was very observant and I would notice the things adults would say to each other and how their words could be so hurtful. So I am very careful of the words I use because our words have energy and vibration to it and it could affect that that person in front of us or around us. So I just think it's simple, just, I feel you and I'm here for you and I hear you, that's it. Like, there's nothing else needed. Like there isn't, Right. it's it's not complicated. And let go of judgment, please. Like it's, that person is going through a lot of pain. And this is what I I remember I was gonna say is, I was in the, after my dad passed, I was in the elevator of Trader Joe's and (laughs) these two Persian, older Persian ladies walk in the elevator and they were talking about my dad and they didn't know I was there. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that, you know, that he had passed away and, you know, they were talking about my father-in-law and this and that. And so, and they didn't say anything really bad, I don't remember, but my thing was you never know who you're around when you're talking about someone whether they're around and they didn't know who I was they just knew you know from word of mouth like what happened so that was very interesting experience (laughs) yes it must have been must have been also painful I'm sorry you had to go through that um Cheryl, you have taken the canvas of your life, the the paints that were handed to you, some of them dark, Mm -hmm. and uh, you chose to bring in light into the darker colors of the canvas that you have been handed, and you have chosen to make beautiful paintings Uh, out of this canvas of your life this is not just a metaphor you have literally done this uh, both as uh, a profession as uh, as an artist as a successful artist that you are now and uh, 
and in your life, uh, in your own personal life. Uh, you have brought in um, the colors of uh, faith, joy, choice, and on a daily basis, making a decision where you're going to stand. And um, if each one of us can take that with us, that yes, we might be handed the darker paints, but in front of us is a series of different colors that's just sitting on the table waiting for us to use those colors on the canvas that is maybe dark at the moment, but all these other colors can be introduced with it and you never know what you might make out of it and the beauty that can come out of it. And you have proven that with um, who you have chosen to become and uh, how you have chosen to express it as you are becoming and as you have become. So I want us to go away with one last thought from you to our soul-filled conversation community as we want to anchor in all the beauties that surrounds us but at the moment that we are going through something we might not really see it nor might it be tangible to us and I want to leave that for you to finish for me first of all that was a very beautiful metaphor you just gave about the paint that's exactly how I felt and I just love the way you use words um it's beautiful I feel that what I want to tell the audience is you're never alone Mm -hmm. and there is always someone there for you to listen. Sometimes I feel like when we're in the midst of this chaos and you're in the tornado, you feel like you are the only one going through this and you're not. And there's no shame in that because there are so many others that may be going through the same exact thing you are. And there's a community out there. You know, there are support groups. Uh, I've been part of a support group. That's another thing I did, you know, that was going through similar situations. So that was really helpful. It's, it's reaching out for like, you can see, like, it's like as if you're in this dark pit and you're just looking up and you have no idea what to do. But when you put your hand up, all you need to do is just put your hand up. Someone will be there to grab it and lift you out of that darkness. Wow. Uh, so it's that simple action, that motion. And to be vulnerable, it's okay. We, we build up these walls and we put on these masks and to, to show the, the world that our lives are great, we're great, we're wonderful, everything's perfect. But on the inside, we are so broken and scared and, and don't know what to do. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
it's okay to take off that mask and show who we really are because in that space, you attract the right people. You bring in the right energy. You create the life you were always meant to create. One thing that scared me so much was when I started to do body paintings because I didn't know what people would think about me. But I put that aside and I said, whatever, it's, they're going to think what they're going to think. And I began to see what it did for people and the joy it brought, the healing, the light, and what it did for me. And I'm so happy I didn't listen to that inner critic or to what I thought people would think about me because it has brought so much expansion and growth and happiness into my life and other women's lives. And so that's what I feel people need to focus on is if I tell the truth and my truth, who is it going to help? What difference am I going to make in someone else's life? My struggle, my pain, my hurt. How can I help someone instead of hiding it, instead of being shameful, instead of saying, people are going to think such horrible things about me and, and, and it's going to ruin my image. What well, doesn't matter anyway, a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. you know, but if you can affect someone's life in a positive way and have that ripple effect, just one person, even that means that I have done my, what I'm supposed to do. and will make more sense for me what I went through, the hurt and pain I went through. If I could help just one person, then that was all worth it. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Thank you so much, Cheryl, uh, for being with us, uh, for sharing your journey with us. I know thank for you, for you to me. be, thank you. I know for you to be here and to be able to talk about this, you must have gone through a lot of healing in order to be here today. So I want our community to know that it is not so easy to talk about or to express those parts of us that are pained in the moment where we feel shame about it. When we have started to heal it, that's when we can talk about it. And that's when we can share and we can say, this is what I have been through. But as uh, Cheryl said, you're not alone. And uh, there is always someone there to help you. Cheryl, thank you so much for being with us. You are very gracious. It has, it has really been an honor to be in this space with you at this time. And may we see many beautiful things, which I'm sure we will, uh, many beautiful paintings and many beautiful art from you as uh, life unfolds. Thank you so much for being with us. I want to thank Soulfield Conversations community 
uh, please do share with us your thoughts, your insights at uh, soulfieldconversations at gmail.com. And I do want to thank those who have shared regarding podcasts. I do thrive on all of them. And um, I'm grateful for all of you for all your feedbacks. Thank you so much. This has been Soulfield Conversations. Thank mm-hmm. you.